Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're joining with us here for this series called Better Together, really just learning about how we can actually be family together and how we can have healthier and holier relationships, connections, and friendships. And today, today I want to talk about something pretty specific. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at things that are really quite broad and apply to all of us. We looked at how church is called to be a family together. We looked at how to be present in our relationships with one another. And then last week, Martin did an excellent job talking about conflict, because we all have conflict as well. Today, though, as I said, I want to talk about something quite specific. Today, I want to talk about marriage. Now, I know as soon as I say that, there might be a whole host of different reactions to that. Some of you might be excited and interested. Others of you might be maybe even bored or unsure how it relates to you. Some of you might even feel a little bit of hurt or loneliness or longing or whatever. But today, in the midst of all those different reactions, here's why I believe that this topic matters for all of us, whether we are married or not. That truthfully, each and every single one of us actually has a view on what marriage is, and I believe that that view should be shaped more by the Bible than by our culture and world around us. Let me say that again. Then when it comes to marriage, whether we are married or not, we all actually have a view of marriage, and that needs to be shaped by the Bible and not by our culture and the world around us. But I do think, I do think that our culture is actually subtly shifting and changing our views on what marriage really is. And so I want to explore it here today together, because I believe that this will help us to have healthier marriages. It will also help us to be more faithful as family and friends with those who are married, to really be better together if we understand God's design in marriage. And so today, that's what I want to explore. But before we jump into all of this, I want to make a few opening comments that I believe are both important and necessary in a sermon such as this. I want to begin by talking a little bit about singleness, about divorce, and then about abuse. So first, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about singleness. That when it comes to the church, especially in the northern, western, western uh, North American context, what has ended up happening so often is that we have actually marginalized those who are single. That for some whatever reason, we have somehow made the norm or the normative reality to be marriage. That for somehow to be a fully functioning person in the church, this is sometimes both explicit or subtle, that you need to be married, have like 2.5 kids and a Pomeranian dog or something like that. That's sometimes what we see as kind of the normal or the gold standard. But this actually is really damaging. And to actually marginalize singleness actually goes against the way of Jesus. And so I think this is something that needs to be named and recognized, but also changed. But rather than me talking a little bit more about it, today we want to hear from Robin in one of our uh, Better Together vignettes to learn a little bit more about what family looks like um, across the board in our church together. My name is Robin and I've been attending Bethany since I was a child. up my thought was that I would just have a family and children and that's how I would I would with my family serve the Lord together and so it's been hard to figure out how does that look on my own how does it look to serve the Lord when it's just me alone at home um, so that's been a challenge to reshape or redirect my vision of what my life was going to look like and to embrace how it looks now and find where God fits in in this stage of life. There may be a lot of stories in the Bible about strong single women, but growing up, I don't remember hearing those stories. Um, there was definitely a strong message growing up uh, to get married and have a family. And it's definitely something that I wanted and still do, but when that's the message that you grow up hearing, that's not where you're at in life. It can be hard to figure out where you fit in and what your purpose is. So there are definitely some feelings of inadequacy or emptiness loneliness or feeling lost because I wasn't on the same path as those that I had grown up with. So it's been a long journey and process, kind of discovering 
who I am and where I fit in and that I am a whole and complete person just as I am and where I'm at in life. It's been incredible his timing for things in my life that I've been impatient about or thought weren't working out. And then I look back and go, oh, that's exactly when that should have happened or in God's timing. So I think that's been a big thing looking forward to the rest of my life to know that things are going to happen in God's timing and they are going to happen as they're supposed to happen and not to rush them or push them. I don't think that I'm struggling with this, with this anymore, but I definitely struggled a lot with discovering that I am a whole and complete person just as I am where I am in life, to kind of stop waiting for the next part of my life to begin, and to just learn to enjoy living life in the moment where I'm at. Uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't room for a family in my life in the future, it just means that if that doesn't happen, or if it's not happening right now, that I'm still a complete and whole person just as I am. It's definitely hard to fit in, I think, in the church single. Luckily, I feel lucky growing up in the church here at Bethany. I feel very comfortable here and I know a lot of people. It's definitely challenging to go to a new church when you're single. It's very intimidating to walk into a front door into a lobby full of people and have no one to talk to you and not know where to stand and you kind of come in as late as possible to sneak in and leave as early as possible. But by doing that, you don't connect and you don't meet people. So I'm very grateful that I do have friendships that I've built here and know people here that I can spend time talking to, but it definitely is hard to make connections, I find, as a single person in the church. I think inclusion is the biggest thing. Everyone wants to be and feel included. Um, I understand that you tend to gravitate to people who are in the same stage of life as you and doing life with you, but just because I don't have children right now doesn't mean that I don't want to get to know your children, get to know your family, and do life with you and be involved with your family. I think the other thing is expanding on what family means because family looks different to everybody. I may not have children of my own right now, but I have nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters and close friends with children. And right now that's what family looks like to me. Embrace and encourage people who are single and are complete and happy in their singleness to not make comments like, oh, the right one's out there for you or it'll happen or I'm so sorry. Um, you know, to say, wow, that's great. What are your interests? What do you do? What is like, what's important to you, as opposed to every conversation, not every, but a lot of conversations seems to be focused around your family, your partner, your goals to have a partner, your goals to have a family. And for some people that's not their goal or they're not there yet. And so there are other things you can connect with and talk about with them. You know, I live in the world, we all live in this world, I can still relate and understand to your struggles and your victories and your hardships without having my own family and my own husband. And we can still relate on a lot of other levels than just, oh, well, we can talk once you have a husband or let's, let's refocus once you have a family and you can understand my life better. I think I have the same to offer as anybody else. I want to be there to support the young families at Bethany. I think they are the future of the church. And I think it takes all of us, young and old, in every stage of life, to come together and support each other and shape the future of the church. Now, didn't you just do like an amazing job? Honestly, those parts of these series, uh, those vignettes are my favorite part, actually, of these services. It's not me talking, it's hearing from one another. I just think that's beautiful and so necessary, and we're so grateful to have Robin share about her perspective and what family looks like for her. And then so today, I want to not only talk about singleness, I also want to mention, as I said, divorce. Because I know, 
I know in a church of our size and in our space, that as soon as I talk about marriage, that there are going to be people who have messy uh, and broken and even difficult pasts or even strained marriages right at the moment. And I know that when the church has approached the topic of marriage, so often, especially when we've approached people with broken pasts or broken marriages, we've actually approached them through the lens of judgment. But here's what I believe, okay? That when it comes to dealing with people's really messy kind of past relationships and all the hurt that can come from it, I believe the starting point needs to always be grace, not judgment. Let me say that again, that I believe that when it comes to actually dealing with the messiness of our past relationships and broken relationships, and even sometimes broken marriages, we need to start with grace, not judgment. And the reason that I know this so truly and so deeply is because this is where Jesus starts. That what we know without a shadow of a doubt is that when Jesus approaches somebody with a really messy past, with multiple kind of failed marriages, Jesus's response to her is to start with grace, not judgment. We find out about this story actually in John 4. And Jesus meets a woman at the well and he talks with this woman and he offers her grace. He offers her the spirit. He offers her the living waters. That's what he says. And in fact, he is actually the very, uh, she is actually the very first person that Jesus names that he's the Messiah to, that he reveals his true identity to. And Jesus does this with a woman who, as the text says, that he knows that she didn't just have one husband, but five husbands. And that the person that she was currently living with wasn't her husband. And so she had a messy background with lots of messy, broken relationships in the past. But what Jesus didn't do is to judge her, but instead gave her grace to change her life. That's the right response. And so I'm sorry for all of you who have ever gone through some really messy, difficult uh, past relationships. And that instead of the church showing the same posture and practice of Jesus in John 4, that they've offered judgment or condemnation. And I think that we need to do better than that. And then lastly, I want to make just a brief comment about abuse that what I know um, is that abuse is a reality in our world. Before I moved down here, I was actually a part of our family violence council in the place where I was at. So this involved me then me listening to many stories of what abuse looked like within families, of hearing lots of different um, just realities for people. And so what I want to say unequivocally true is that if there is abuse within your marriage, that this needs to not be denied or discounted. It needs to be dealt with. I want to invite you really to find professional help I just think that that really does matter. And that for us to enter into a conversation around marriage without naming both singleness, divorce, and abuse, and having some opening comments on it, it just wouldn't be appropriate. So with that kind of opening or framing comments, I want to begin then to actually explore the Bible's view of marriage. But before we can dive deeply into the Bible, I want to set it up and contrast it with our culture's view of marriage. So I want to first name how marriage seems to function within our day and age. And the way I would like to put it, after seeing you know, tons of movies on all the stuff around us and talking with lots of people, is that when it comes to marriage, this is our culture's view. It's something called the individualistic romantic view of marriage. And essentially, this is how our, our culture or our world approaches marriage. That marriage is about making you happy and complete. That's how our culture really views marriage. That marriage is about making you happy and complete. It's about fulfilling something within you. It's about actually making your life better. That marriage seems to be all about that within our culture, within our society, within our world. This is why then people sometimes when they leave marriages, they might say things like it wasn't working for me anymore or the magic was gone because marriages are about making us happy in our day and age. Jonathan Haidt, uh, who is a fantastic psychologist, he puts it this way. He says, the modern myth of true love involves these beliefs, that true love is passionate love that never fades. If you're in true love, you should marry that person. If love ends though, you should leave that person because it was not true love. And if you can, uh, can't find the right person, if you can find the right person, then you will have true love forever. That's kind of the, what our culture believes. 
And I know when you put it that boldly, it seems silly, but honestly, that's like every single romantic comedy that's ever been designed. This is how our world approaches marriage, that it's actually a self-centered, individualistic kind of idea, that marriage becomes a vehicle for your own personal happiness, fulfillment, and contentment, but that's not the biblical view of marriage. That when it comes to the Bible, here's the Bible's orientating kind of perspective on marriage, okay? That marriage isn't about making you happy, marriage is about making you holy. I want to say that again because we need to get our heads around this if we're ever going to actually have faithful marriages. That marriage is not about making you happy, it's about making you holy. Or to put it differently, that marriage in a, uh, when you're married becomes the primary space and place for your growth with Christ. It actually becomes the primary place, to use an old word, for your sanctification, for your ongoing discipleship with Jesus. Because this is just true for all of us who are married and those of us who aren't, that your closest relationships become the biggest places where you actually follow Jesus. So when you are married, that means a marriage is the space where you follow Jesus deepest. This is the place where you get to practice real Christian Christ-like themes of sacrifice, of submission, of serving, and of sharing. This is what marriage is about. It's not just about making you happy, it's actually about making you holy, which is a different way of saying, it's about a place where you can actually become more Christ-like through your own behaviors, choices, and through your own actions. And that's really what I wanna explore here today. And to do that, I want to explore quite deeply, actually, a passage in Ephesians 5. It's a passage that has been misunderstood uh, quite a bit, but it's one that I think we need to really understand if we're going to have faithful marriages and faithful uh, view of marriage um, in our day and age and in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians 5, and we're going to take a look at what Paul has to say. And here within Paul, what he gives to us is actually a view of marriage that he calls us towards, actually. That oftentimes in the Bible, there are many different pictures of marriage that are given, and many of them are not positive at all. I mean, just go take a look at like Abraham, Moses, or David. These are not examples we would necessarily want to follow, okay? Especially when it comes to marriage. But here in Ephesians 5, Paul gives us some really clear commands about how to act in marriage, about what to kind of live out. And I want to read it to you. I want to invite you really to keep on your theological thinking caps because today is going to be a little bit uh, geeky and a little bit deep and we're going to kind of dive into some stuff together. So Paul says this. He says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of, the, of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church, without a spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who actually loves his wife actually loves, uh, shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. We are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And so this is the passage I really want to explore here today together. I want to jump into it a little bit. I want to actually really wrestle with it and really take a look at it. And the first thing that we read is just this. I want to read it to you again. It's the very first verse. Uh, Paul says this, And further, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Let me read that again, because this actually is the heading of the entire passage. This is the orientation of the entire passage. Paul says this, and further you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So who is called to submit to one another according to this passage? The answer is everyone, correct? That's what Paul expects, that everyone, if you're filled with Christ, that's the preceding verses in Ephesians, that if you're filled with Christ in his spirit, the natural reaction we should have is to become mutually submissive to one another. That's what he says. Let everyone submit uh, to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this command of Christ, of Paul's, actually covers every single relationship. So then here's not a trick question, but I just want to lay it out there for you. So when it comes to relationships and marriages, is the husband supposed to submit to his wife? According to scripture, the answer is yes, correct? Like unequivocally, yes, because what does Paul say to every single person? He says this, and further, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This command of Paul's actually covers every single relationship. This is what we are called to do as Christians. But sometimes you might have heard this passage preached in such a way that wives are called to submit, but husbands are not. This is honestly a total misreading of the passage, and we'll get into why it's a misreading of the passage. But to begin with, the point I want to make right off the bat is just this, that every single person who is male, female, old, or young, you know, who is married or not, we are called to mutually submit to one another. That's Paul's point. He says this, and further you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I know this idea of mutual submission, it honestly doesn't preach well and it doesn't play well in our culture. We don't like to really submit to anything. But here's the thing, okay? That while our culture does not do submission well, it is the practice and the posture of Christ, so we need to do it as well. Paul makes this unequivocally clear as well in another passage in Philippians 2 verse 5, where he says we're to have the same attitude as Christ. And then he goes on to share how the attitude of Christ is about submission, how it's about obedience, how it's about sacrificing This is how we are called to live with one another. We are actually called to be mutually submissive to each other as Christians. This is the actual way for there to be harmony within the church. That's what we're called to do. And this is what Paul raises up. And you already likely know this, really, that if you're actually going to have any harmony, it can't be about power and dominance. That never works. What actually works in relationships is submission to one another. And so Paul reminds us, before he even starts to talk about marriage, he reminds us that for everyone, married or single or whatever, we are all called to submit to one another. We're called to be mutually submissive. And then what Paul does is he applies this for wives. That's what goes on. He'll actually apply it also for husbands because both wives and husbands are called to submit to one another. But let's read what Paul says. So he says this, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, as many of you might realize, In the original kind of Greek manuscripts, there were no headings and there were no verses, actually. And what some translators did, especially until recently in modern history, is what they did when they translated these passages and put in headings and put in verses is that they split up verse 21 and verse 22. So that instead of us reading that we're called to submit to one another, the verse often began, or the heading or the section often began with this verse, for wives this means submit to your husbands. But that's a real problem, actually. Because what Paul is doing here when he says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is an example of the preceding verse. This is why the NLT does an excellent job with their translation. Because it says you're called to mutually submit. And then uh, Paul says, for wives, this looks like then submitting to your husbands. This is unequivocally actually clear in the Greek, actually. That verse 22 is an example of verse 21. Let me read you exactly what it says in the Greek, okay? This is it, word for word what it says with no kind of interpretation or extras. It simply says this, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. 
wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, does anybody notice anything missing in that phrase? Right, because that phrase as itself actually doesn't work. What's missing is a verb, actually. And this is because verse 22 is a dependent clause on verse 21. So the first verse has the verb that then is implied in the second verse. And if all of that kind of goes over your head for, you know, you're not a grammar geek or whatever, here's just what it means. It's that when Paul says wives are to submit to their husbands, this is an example of mutual submission. That the real heading, the real thing that controls all of this is Paul when he says we are all called to submit to one another. That's the first thing that we see. So Paul says, um, for wives, this means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then Paul will actually go on in just a few verses, and he'll talk about what mutual submission looks like for husbands as well. But I want to realize just here that both are called to submit. And when we use that word submit, it's the word that's in Greek that's called hypotasso. And literally what it means, it can be translated as to respect, to yield, to defer, or to put another's good ahead of your own. It does not mean do what you're told. It does not mean don't share your opinion. It does not mean be a doormat. Instead, when Paul is calling us to mutually submit, it's talking about being open with one another. It's talking about being vulnerable with one another. It's talking about trusting and putting the other person's cares and concerns ahead of your own. And this is what we are called to do. And Paul then says, for wives who are in a marriage, you're called to do this to your husband, to submit to them. And Paul continues, and he says this, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, as he says, uh, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. And here, I imagine that when Paul first, you know, when this letter was first read out from Paul, there actually might have been some snickers, some laughs. Maybe somebody said, oh, please. Some kind of maybe some sarcastic remarks. Because notice here what Paul is inviting women to do really clearly. Paul is saying to wives that they should submit to their husbands. And this would have, I imagine, struck some people as incredibly funny. Because you want to know what happened that day and age? Wives didn't submit to their husbands. Because guess what? Wives didn't have a choice in their marriages. Remember, back in that day and age, in Paul's day and age, wives were not partners in a marriage. They were property. So they were always just being told what to do. They actually had no agency, no voice, or no power. So when Paul here tells women, actually, that they are called to submit to their wives, he's doing two things at once. And it's actually countercultural. The first thing that he is doing is he's giving women agency. He's saying, you have a choice. You have a position in this marriage. You have power in this marriage. That is what he's saying. He's actually raising them up to equal levels. And then he's inviting women to actually have the same choice that Christ did, to actually show submission and obedience and sacrifice. That's what's going on here. So when Paul calls women to submit, this is not a dismissive view of women. This is Paul raising women up and then inviting them to practice the same attitude and actions of Christ. And then Paul actually gives a reason for it. At one point, he says, for a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. But to really understand this portion, we need to dive a little bit deeper into the next section and understand what Paul is saying to husbands. So we read this. This is the next section. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives. Again, the NLT does a great job here showing that this is an example of that first clause in verse 21 about us all mutually submitting. So he says then for husbands, this submission, this mutual submission, here's what it looks like. It means you loving your wife just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it. 
just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And this is a great mystery, but is also an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. And here, here Paul is being explicitly clear. Husbands are called to love their wives. Husbands are called to sacrifice for their wives. Husbands are called actually to put uh, their wife ahead of them in every single circumstance and aspect. That's what's going on here. Paul is unequivocally clear that actually the calling of husbands is to love uh, their wives with the same depth of love that Christ loves the church. And this is what it means actually to be the head of the wife. In Greek, the word head, what it actually can mean is origin or source. We still have some of this actually within our English translations and our English world. Sometimes we might talk about the head of a river as its source or origin point. So when Paul says that we're called to be the head of the marriage, what that means is we're called to be the source of strength, of life, of caring, of sacrifice, of giving for our wives. That's what's going on here. That husbands are called to the same level of depth and sacrifice that Christ has shown for the church. So maybe we can just agree with this, husbands and men out there. Paul's setting the bar rather high, is he not? Right? When he's saying that our love for our wives needs to match the depth and commitment that Jesus has for the church, that is a pretty high bar. But that's what it looks like to be the head of a marriage. It actually means to actually take the first step in obedience and sacrifice and giving and submission every single time. It means being a source of strength and care. Right? That's what Paul gets at too when he says, no one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. So this... This is an example then of what mutual submission would have looked like for a man in Paul's day and age. Because remember, in Paul's day and age, men didn't love their wives, right? They didn't have to, they were property. Men used them, men didn't cherish them, but that's what Paul is getting at. Paul is actually raising the bar of the responsibility for men and saying, you need to love your wife with such a depth and sacrifice that you would even give up your life for her, just as Christ gave up his life for the church. That's a level of commitment that is being called for. That's a level of responsibility that is being called for. And this is new for his day and age. Because remember, for Paul, in his day and age, men didn't really love or cherish their wives. But that is absolutely, unequivocally, what Paul is calling for people to do, to actually love their wives. Listen to how he puts it. He says, for husbands, this means loving your wife. This is what mutual submission looks like. It means loving your wife just as Christ loved the church. It says this, and he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot, a wrinkle, or any blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. And here, here Paul's making a really interesting kind of connection between the church and Christ and between husbands and wives. What he's saying is really is just that Christ died for the church. And he says that through Christ's sacrifice, the church becomes actually like faultless. The church becomes clean. The church loses any of its blemishes, sins, or stains, which is a wonderful thing because all churches are broken at some point, right? Um, even ours, this stuff happens. But listen to what Paul says. He actually says um, that Christ sacrificed and he did this present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any blemish. What Paul is pointing to the fact is that Christ's sacrifice actually makes the church's blemish, sins, and faults actually fall away and disappear. It covers over it. 
This is what uh, Christ's sacrifice does for the church. And then Paul applies this to husbands and says, you're supposed to love your wife in the same way. You're supposed to love your wife with such a depth, actually, that your love and your sacrifice and your submission and your serving and your giving to your wife, that it actually covers over any faults, sins, or blemishes that they might have. That the depth of love you are to have for your spouse would actually cover up any of their faults or blemishes. This is a beautiful thing. This is what Paul is actually naming and calling every single husband to. That what Christa should be able to turn towards within me is that I'm supposed to be such a source of strength, of love, of encouragement for her that I support her so fully, so deeply that it actually would cover up any of her own you know, sins, faults, or blemishes. That's what's going on here. This is the calling that Paul is inviting every single husband into, to love your wife with that level of depth, of commitment, of care, and compassion. And I mean, let's put this in context. If all husbands love their wives with that level of depth, would there be any challenge for wives to actually submit when they're actually showing the same love that Christ shows for the church? That is the calling. That is our responsibility. That is what we need to demonstrate. This is what Paul is saying marriage is about, that it's about mutual submission. It's about sacrifice. It's about serving. And this is what we are called to. And I think too often, too often when this passage has been preached, it has been preached to women with the call to submit without the corresponding call to men to do the same thing and to submit through sacrifice, obedience, through really being that foundation of love and encouragement that makes their wives actually just become a better version of themselves. That's the kind of care and depth that Paul is inviting us into. And I know, I know here I'm actually talking a lot to men and to husbands, but that's because Paul actually spends twice the amount of time doing the same thing. And so I think we need to actually focus in on this calling that Paul has for us. This is what a biblical view of marriage looks like. So what does this mean for us today? Well, I think if we take this passage seriously, what we start to notice is really a different view of marriage than our worlds, a totally different view of marriage than our worlds. That when it comes to marriage, for Paul, what it really looks like, it isn't about power, it's about partnership. Right? It is actually about covenant, and it, it's actually about mutual submission. That in our day and age, as I said, marriage is all about making you happy, right? finding someone that fulfills you and that does all the right things for you, and it's really about this self-serving need. But that is not biblically what marriage is about. Marriage isn't about making you happy. It is about making you holy through giving you a space to practice submission, sacrifice, and serving. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening in this passage. Paul is calling both men and women, husbands and wives, to be mutually submissive, really to actually practice sacrifice, serving, and obedience. That's what marriage is about. And I would like to say it maybe this way, that when you get the order correct, that when you actually focus on living holy Christ-like lives, that then that's when happiness flows. Because marriages can be incredibly fulfilling. They can be incredibly great. They can be beautiful, wonderful things. But it happens when holiness is the first kind of action when holiness is the first priority. That I know, at least for our marriage between me and Krista, that I know it goes so much better that when I actually focus in on serving and sacrificing and being there for her, that's when happiness flows. I think she would say the same thing the other way, that when she focuses in on submitting, even with my, all my idiosyncrasies, because I can be quite difficult to live with, don't um, you know, kid yourself, um, that when she shows all of that stuff, that's when happiness flows that when both partners are actually committed to serving, to sacrifice, and to submission, this is what marriage is about, and this is what Paul is inviting us into. So what's my main point today? My main point is just really simple, okay? It's that marriage is about sacrifice and mutual submission. That's what marriage is about, okay? It isn't about making you just happy and fun and all that sort of stuff. It isn't just about making you complete or how our world views it. That really what marriage is all about, it is about actual sacrifice and submission. 
And I think we need to get this in our minds if we're ever going to have a biblical view of marriage and to not let just our world's view distort it and distort our own responsibilities within it, that this is how we have to see marriage. So if this is kind of my main point today, that marriage is really about uh, spaces of sacrifice and submission, what does this mean for us practically? Well, today I want to apply it really in three different spaces, for those who are married, for those who are hoping to be married, and then for those who are single as well. So first, first, for those of you who are married, here's how I think you applied this message, okay? What I want to invite you into is one single question. It's just this. Are you loving your spouse as Christ asks you to? Out of this passage. Just are you loving your spouse as Christ asks you to? Are you being willing to serve, to sacrifice, to submit? Are you putting their needs first? Or are you more worried about yourself? I want to invite you into really thinking this through. When it comes to your spouse, are you loving your spouse as Christ asks you to? Because I know that, at least I can speak for me, that whenever Kristen and I fight, right, whenever we get into an argument, that my focus always goes onto what she should be doing. That's always my focus. It's never on what I should be doing. But here Paul is really turning the lens and he's inviting us to really think through, what are we doing? Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to submit? Are we willing to put the other person first? That's the calling in this passage. I want to invite you, if you're married, to really think through, how can you love your spouse like Christ does this week? That's really my challenge out of this, to really put this stuff into practice. That'll mean then like probably not nagging or gossiping or whining or complaining. It'll mean actually praising your spouse. It'll mean respecting. It'll mean submitting and sacrificing. It'll mean all the beautiful hard work that brings more happiness and abundance in a marriage than ever before. So I want to invite you into that. I want to challenge you into that. Would you actually practice mutual submission in your marriage? But before we move on, I need to make just one real clear comment because of how sometimes this passage has been used specifically by men in inappropriate ways. That when Paul is calling for mutual submission, this does not mean within situations of abuse. That abuse, what it does is it invalidates, it destroys, and it cancels marriage. And that if you're suffering from abuse, uh, this is something that is really serious and shouldn't be denied, and there should be um, professional help with it. But uh, abuse is not something that we ever need to submit to. And I just think that that should be made clear. Second thing then. Second space. Um, So how does this apply then if you maybe hope to be married one day? Well, here's how I think it applies if you hope to be married. This is what every single married person knows, okay? There are no marriage problems. They're like people problems that people bring into marriage, okay? So here's what I want to invite you to do, to really be working on being the kind of person right now that can put somebody else first, that can actually sacrifice for someone else, that can actually submit to someone else. That what I know is that if you're hoping for marriage, you're hoping that the person you find, your partner, your spouse, that they would have been doing the exact same work of really working through all those things of self-centeredness, of anger, jealousy, whatever it is, all this stuff we bring into marriages. Instead, what I want to invite you to do, that if, if you are single, to actually work on this, to be the kind of person who is actually putting in the work to become someone who can serve and who can sacrifice within a marriage. This is how I think it applies to those of you who might be in the space of hoping to be married. And then for those of you who are single, how does this apply to you? I think it actually applies in the very same way because what does Paul say at the very beginning? He says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the calling in all of our relationships. So if you're single, I want to invite you to practice mutual submission with those around you, to practice actually submitting to your family, your friends, and your close relationships, to practice this idea of serving and sacrificing Because what Paul is getting at is just this, is that in all of our relationships, there needs to be this idea of mutual submission. And then Paul applies it into marriages, and he applies it um, then for husbands and for wives. But it needs to be a part of all of our lives. So today, what is my challenge? My challenge is just this. Would you practice submission and love and sacrifice in your closest relationships? Would you practice submission, love, and sacrifice in your closest relationships? 
If you're married, do that with your spouse. If you're hoping to be married, do that with the person that you are dating or your closest family and friends. And if you're single, do that with your closest relationships. Would you practice submission, love, and sacrifice in your closest relationships? Because this is what we need to actually start to be practicing as Christians. Our world tells us that our relationships are about us. But Paul and Christ tells us that our relationships are spaces for us to practice this Christ-like attitude of obedience, of sacrifice, and submission. And that's what I want to invite you into this week. So that's my main point. My main point is that marriage is really about actual sacrifice and submission. So may we actually then begin to practice that in our closest relationships this week. And so with that, would you join with me in prayer here this morning? God, I pray. I pray, Lord, would we take the hard step to actually put the people that we are closest with first within our lives? Will we put their needs first? Will we really practice those disciplines of sacrifice, of obedience, of submission, of serving, of sharing, and of giving? I pray, God, would we be a strong foundation for our closest relationships, that when they turn towards us, might they be able to count on us to be people who would give towards them and would be able to care towards them? I pray, God, might we be able to practice this mutual submission within our closest relationships? And might we, through that, develop your attitude and begin to live and love and look like you? And we pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.